So today we're going to read verses 35 to 51, which is uh, the beginning of Jesus' disciples uh, following, or the, the first encounter. Uh, John gives us a really, really early glimpse of uh, uh, Jesus encountering the disciples. We tend to think Jesus was walking along the road, or walking along the shores of Galilee, and he just uh, said to Peter and, and, uh, and Andrew and James and John, just come follow me. And these complete strangers just said, all oh, right, okay. But John tells us that there was an earlier encounter. Uh, so we're going to read about that. Um, and we, we read, in fact, that uh, at least um, two of Jesus' disciples started off as disciples of John the Baptist. Um, so we're going to read from verse 35. If you want to take, oh, they've all gone. No, there's a big pile of them over there. If you want a Bible, you don't have your own, then um, you can feel free to borrow one, but it'll be up there on the screen. Let's hear God's word today. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning round, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, what, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than that. He then added, Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Amen. May God bless this reading from His Word. And so we have this story of, of calling, a story of these early disciples who started off somehow with two of them at least, we know for sure, were John the Baptist's disciples. And then when 
they were introduced by John to Jesus as the Lamb of God. They changed their allegiance. John effectively passed them on, commended Jesus to them. And he'd always said uh, that he wasn't there to uh, have a following himself. He was there to prepare the way for the one who would come. And in a sense, that's all uh, you and I are asked to do. All you and I are asked to do is to prepare the way for other people. If you're here because you know Jesus and because you already have a relationship with God in Jesus Christ, then your calling now is to prepare the way for other people. Your calling is to prepare the way by how you live, by what you choose to do and not to do, by uh, what your values and priorities are, and by the things that shape your life. Is it the voices of the age or is it the Word of God? What is it that determines how you use or spend your money? Is it, is it uh, protecting yourself and all that you have? Or is it um, living generously for, 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 for Jesus and for His people? And so how you live and what you say will, will give evidence of uh, what you believe. At least it should. It should. I'm still uh, haunted by my friend's Richard, my friend Richard's words to me once when he said, I don't know how you can believe what you say you believe and live the way you do. So sometimes what we profess and sing about and are in front of other people, we don't necessarily follow through with outside of this environment. And so John wanted to point people to Jesus, as do we. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. And I have no idea what they, what they heard when Jesus said that. Uh, sorry, when John said that. The Lamb of God. What does that even mean at this stage? The Lamb of God. Of course, for Jewish people, what it, it would have pointed them straight to was, was the Passover meal. One of the things that every Jewish uh, individual knew was that when there was a reference to lamb, there was a reference to sacrifice. The temple in Jerusalem ran with the daily sacrifices that people brought, and poor people brought pigeons and doves, and, and wealthier people might bring uh, a lamb. And certainly when Passover rolled around every year, that was the annual um, uh, repentance meal, if you like, where the people of Israel would remember how God uh, had rescued His people by telling them to take a lamb and slaughter it and put the blood on the lintels and the doorposts of their houses as a protection against the, the angel of death that struck the firstborn of all the people of Egypt. And so it was a, a reference to lamb went right back to how God had protected His people and safeguarded them and provided a way for their sins to be forgiven. And so if I was a Jewish guy and I heard someone say the Lamb of God, I might not know the detail, but I would know that somehow this had something to do with, with sacrifice and sins being forgiven. And so uh, the two disciples, when they heard him say this, began to follow Jesus. And Jesus turned around, and the first words that Jesus speaks in John's Gospels are these, and I don't think they're well translated. 
because it says in the NIV, certainly, what do you want? And actually, actually, the verb that, that is used in Greek has much more revenant resonance of, of what are you seeking? What are you looking for? What is it that you're seeking? Not just what do you want? <laughs> so there's a question that Jesus might ask of you. What is it that you're seeking? Especially if you don't know him yet. Because lots of people are, are seeking truth. They're seeking a way in life. They're, they're seeking meaning. Meaning. They're seeking value. They're seeking purpose. Is there anything that makes sense of it? On a day when we remember the senseless slaughter of millions of lives. And what is it achieved? The war that's a hundred years finished that was meant to be the war that would end all wars. And yet, in reality, paved the way, as we know, for a second major war and a holocaust. And as if those weren't enough, humankind's appetite for war and carnage and an ever more sophisticated means of killing people just continues unabated. Whether through the mass destruction of a nuclear war or through the detached drone strike of somebody sitting in protected isolation controlling a weapon that will take out an entire community at a distance of thousands or even or hundreds of thousands of miles. So, despite all the things that we try to make right and fix, prevent and protect and engage with in the world, we're not very good at seeking a way to live. We're not very good at seeking and finding ways to live at peace with one another. And people are, are on a quest for truth, for meaning, for purpose. What is the point? And so these two uh, disciples, as they would be, were asked by Jesus, what are you seeking? And whether you're a believer already or not, what is it that you're seeking now in life? I hope your answer, if you're a believer, is that I'm, I'm seeking the will and the purpose and the direction and the plan that God has for me because He has one. I'm seeking what it is that God wants to do in me and with me and, and through me. I'm seeking Him because when I find Him, then I will find meaning and purpose. And so the two, not really knowing Jesus, say, Rabbi, where are you staying? They're transferring their allegiance. They want to come and get to know. And so Jesus simply says, come and you will see. And so they spent that day with him or what was left of it. It was four o'clock in the afternoon. And so that was a first encounter. And a bit like Jesus going to the house of Zacchaeus, we don't really know what was going on. Adam, could you just, did someone come in just now? Let me just check for me. Ah, oh, someone did come in. It's fine. Christian. Hello, Christian. Everyone say hi, Christian. <laughs> and so, who were these two disciples? Well, we're told about one of them. One of them was, was, <coughs> excuse me, was Andrew. 
Peter's brother. I always think Andrew gets a bit of a short straw. Uh, fortunately, you know, Scotland had mercy on him. We have him on a flag, and we remember him, and every second church of Scotland is St. Andrew's, and so on. But by and large, in the Gospels, Andrew doesn't get much of a profile. His biggest profile is that he was Peter's brother. Don't you just hate that? I'm a twin. I hate that. Anyone ever says to me, yeah, he's Douglas's brother? No. Can I just tell you this? Here's a little aside, okay? If you're ever encountering twins, twins are two people, not half a person, Okay? They're not just half of one person. They are two separate individuals with their own lives, names, and identities. Right, thank you, rant over. Okay, Andrew was Simon Peter's brother, one of the two who heard what John had said and had followed Jesus. Who was the other one? The mystery disciple. We're not told who the other one was. Of course, John, who wrote the gospel, is often quite bashful about revealing his own identity. The one whom Jesus loved is one of the descriptors that we often find, especially in the the back end of the gospel. The disciple whom Jesus loved is a bit of self-reference. So John seems to know that there were two at this stage, so I wonder if the other one was John. I don't know. It's speculative. But the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him we found the Messiah. It's natural, right? It's natural that when you think you find something good, you share it. You share it. I started the church that I used to go to in Edinburgh when I uh, first got serious about following Jesus. Was I went along to because my brother was going along to that church, and he said, "Yeah, you should come." <laughs> and so we. We try where we can with our family, and maybe we're not close to our family, but maybe with our best friends or the people that we're closest to. If we find good news, we pass it on. Somebody sent me something on WhatsApp the other day uh, that JD Sports were giving away 500 pound uh, gift tokens. Uh, and so, um, I, I, you know, it was Charlie actually who was here on Wednesday night. He, he sent me this message on WhatsApp. JD Sports are giving away vouchers for 500 pounds. Pass this on. You can thank me later. I thought, oh, good on you, Charlie. Thanks very much. And so I kind of went to pass it on and, uh, of course, discovered, as with all of these things, that it was a scam. Um, and I then had to send a little note of apology to the 15 people I sent it on saying, please ignore that. It's a scam. But the instinct when there's good news, if you know it's genuine good news, is you want to tell other people, right? If you know that there's a deal on somewhere, and if you get there quickly enough, you can get that deal, you want other people that you like and care about to benefit from. That's just being kind. Unless, of course, it's the last one in the shop, in which case you'll go and get it yourself and say, yeah, if there'd been two, I would have told you, but there was only one, and I got it. It's lovely, right? The whole nature of mission is, by and large, this strategy. The nature of mission is this strategy, that you share good news with people that you care about because you care that they benefit too. And when it's life-saving good news about eternity, then you care that they know too. And so that was uh, Andrew's instinct to go and find his brother and tell him 
we find the Messiah. Whoa, talk about rushing to the conclusion. How on earth did they know this was the Messiah? Except that John the Baptist, who they've been following, had said, this is the Lamb of God. And so there's this early flurry of excitement, and he brought him to Jesus. And so it was Andrew who brought Peter, his brother, to Jesus. There are many famous named Christians in the world, and the unsung ones are the people who brought them to Jesus, the people who prayed for them, the faithful grandmothers, the uh, the, the Sunday school teachers or leaders, the people who basically invested time and energy to bring other people to Jesus, who then may have gone on to have a bigger or a greater um, name or status or celebrity. I forget the name of the man who led Billy Graham to Christ, but he was an unknown and unsung man who was preaching crusades, or who was uh, preaching, and, and uh, this young tearaway responded to Jesus, not a particularly promising young lad, and yet this young lad was Billy Graham, who in turn led millions to Jesus over the course of his life and ministry. Do not imagine that the person that you know, that you care about, might not be used powerfully or mightily in the hands of God or in the name of Jesus. You don't know who you're influencing. And don't imagine that the person who looks completely and utterly unpromising cannot be used by Jesus. Because it's my experience that some of the most dynamic leaders have the roughest testimonies. And if you saw them while they were still unformed, unrefined, unhewn, then you would just see trouble. Saul of Tarsus was trouble, right? So who is there who's trouble? Because maybe they're the ones that Jesus wants to be most glorified through. And so then we move on, and the next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, and he found Philip. And he said to him, follow me. So Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. So here we have two different networks, if you like. And let me invite you to think about your networks then. Because at one level, Andrew's network was his family, was the people closest to him. And there may be people who are closest to you, a really close friend, a brother, a sister, a family member, a nephew, a niece. And that's your closest network, the people that, you're, that you share the closest space with. <coughs> but then the connection with Philip was, was a slightly bigger one. It wasn't that they were family, it was that they were community. They all came from the town of Bethsaida, which is on the north shore of, of, uh, of the Sea of Galilee. And so think wider then. It might not be family. It might be your group of friends. It might be the bunch of people on your course. It might be the people in your office. It might be the folks in your neighborhood or community or street. Who are the people around there that, that you have relationship and opportunity with to uh, share the good news? 
One of the things that we, uh, yesterday, uh, half a dozen of us on the leadership team were away all day, Friday, <coughs> excuse me, Friday night and all day yesterday, at the next stage of a thing called the learning community. We're learning about, about discipleship and leadership and, and, and how to encourage and develop you, I suppose, to, to take up your, your calling as disciples, some of you as leaders, and what are, the, what are the groups, the areas, the places, whether geographical or, or types of people? It might be vulnerable people. It might be, uh, it might be people uh, living in the margins. It might be refugees. It might be uh, folks in their 20s or 30s. It might be people with particular addictions. I don't know. Who are the people that God is giving you a heart or a concern for? Andrew had a concern for his family and told Simon Peter, the reason Philip was told was because Andrew and Peter knew Philip from their community. So it was a different network, if you like, a different place. Where is God giving you a heart? What's giving God, you, God giving you a heart for? Is it, is it the group of people that you study with or work alongside? Is it another group of people that you have compassion on and want to see good news come to them? Now, not everyone's an evangelist out on the street preaching with a big shiny Bible in their hand and shouting at the crowds. That's not everybody's approach. But good news is it wasn't Andrew's approach either, it doesn't seem. But the effective approach that is recorded here was not the yelling at strangers approach. It was the, how can I share good news with the people I care about and the people I have a connection with or the people that Jesus is sending me to because they need good news in their lives. And sometimes random encounters happen. I had a conversation with somebody the other day who just came into the cafe, asked to speak to the minister or someone, and I had a conversation with someone who was just at a really bad place in their life and had tried other religions and found them wanting, and life was just desperate. And so there was a God-given moment, like right in front of me, to speak to someone and invite them to come to know Jesus. Now, it will be steps along the way for that person. I trust and I pray that they will take all of those steps and that we'll have opportunity to carry on. And so Philip responded. He was from Bethsaida. And here's the next connection then. So Andrew to Peter, Peter to Philip, Philip to Nathaniel. Ah, the tricky one. Huh. Nathaniel was not a pushover. And so he went and found Nathaniel, who was presumably a mate of his, and said, We found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote. Hallelujah, we're really excited. We've, we think we've found the Messiah. Early days, not quite sure how they were so certain, but we think we've found him. Jesus of Nazareth. Now, you hear that and you think of a film title, right? He just heard Jesus of Springburn or Jesus of Nets Hill or Jesus of Kelvindale. I don't know. He just heard Jesus of a random place where no one and nothing had ever said the Messiah would come from. 
Indeed, Nathaniel, it seems, was fairly sure that Nazareth, being a bit of a heck town, was not likely to be spawning messiahs or heroes. And that's what he says. Because Nathaniel is one of these brilliant, plain-talking people. John's the only one who calls him Nathaniel, by the way. In all likelihood, he is the Bartholomew you find in all the lists in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. People had two names, or three, right? Simon, Peter, Cephas. And so Nathaniel reacts, and Philip says the only sensible thing to say to someone who may mock and scoff and laugh and ridicule the fact that you believe in Jesus in 21st century Glasgow, because Nathaniel reacts with ridicule. Jesus of Nazareth, yeah, I write, I think is the phrase. And yet, Philip, instead of trying to argue, just says, come and see. You generally find that most of the people who want to have an argument with you about the Gospels have never read them. (laughs) Most of the people that want to have an argument with you about Jesus have never explored the Christian faith, but have cobbled together a few half-truths and bits and pieces from what they've heard or what they've seen or what they've assumed. And Philip said, we'll come and see. That's why we run Alpha, so we can say to people, come and see. It's why when we gather together, we try and gather together in a way that is as as ordinary and and unchurchy as possible so that we can say to people, we'll come and see. You know, don't let church architecture or hymns or robed choirs or things like that put you off. Just come and see what you think about Jesus. And actually, underneath all the the arguments and the fights that you will have with people, and I get them street pastoring on the street sometimes, the guy that's had a few and wants to set you straight about the nonsense that you believe, by the way. Well, there's no arguing in that situation. The answer is just, we'll come and see. Have you read it? Go to the source. It's like when people get hung up on church and say, well, I wouldn't go to church because of him or her or what happened in 19 Canteen or or that baggage or my family history or something. And I'm like, stuff all that. What about Jesus? What about the gospel? What about the resurrection? Who do you say that Jesus is? Because actually, at the bottom line, that's the big question. And then Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, and he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit, no uh, guile. See, I think Jesus likes these people. I think Jesus certainly liked Nathanael. Because he knew that despite Nathanael's feistiness, his argumentativeness, his pig-headedness, or whatever else Nathanael was like, Jesus is like, well, here's a guy who's not going to mince his words. Here's a guy who tells it straight. Here's a guy who says what it means and doesn't dress it up. Here's a guy I can work with or speak to. And Jesus says, how, uh, Nathaniel said, how do you know me? He said, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. And he's like, whoa, 
<laughs> Whoa, Rabbi. <laughs> he says, and, and I mean, this is even this is hysterical, actually. You're the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus is like, oh, st- steady, Nathaniel. <laughs> you believe just because I said I saw you under the fig tree. He said, you'll see greater things than that. And then he added, and I don't know whether this is okay. This is my own little thought here. He says, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What was Nathaniel doing under the fig tree? I have no idea what he was doing. Sleeping, perhaps. Reading? Unlikely. I wonder if Nathaniel was sitting under the fig tree thinking about Genesis chapter 28. Genesis chapter 28 is that story where Jacob goes to a place that he subsequently calls Bethel, and he sleeps there, and he has a dream. And in his dream, he sees heaven open, and angels ascending and descending from God to this place where Jacob is. And there's a whole little backstory with Jacob, because Jacob was a crook and a deceiver. Jacob was a dishonest man. Jacob cheated his own brother, unlike Andrew, He did not have his brother's best interests at heart. He sought to steal the family blessing as the firstborn son. And Jacob was a dishonest man. And yet Jacob was the one through whom the family line went. Here is a man in whom there is no deceit. I wonder if Nathaniel had been thinking about Jacob. I wonder if Nathaniel, when he sat under the fig tree, had been thinking about the person of Jacob the deceiver. I wonder if he'd been thinking about that story of angels ascending and and descending, of a connection between heaven and earth. Jesus said, I tell you, you'll see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Well, I don't know the answers to that. I do know, however, that Nathaniel was a truth seeker. But I also know that Nathaniel got it only half right. He said, Nathaniel, Nathaniel said to Jesus, Rabbi, you're the Son of God. And then he said something else. He said, You're the King of Israel. You're the King of Israel. And Jesus knew that Nathaniel had only got it half right. One of the things all the disciples got half right was that they thought that Jesus was just there for their own country. They thought that Jesus was just there for Israel. Jesus was just there to be the Savior of God's chosen people. And actually what Jesus came to do was to set up a new nation, a new kingdom, a new society, and to call people from all the ends of the earth. Jesus came to set up and establish God's reign and rule on this earth. I find remembrance a difficult occasion in some respects, because on the one hand, I want to remember, and believe me, I have walked around Uh, Commonwealth war graves, Commonwealth cemeteries in Holland, in Italy, in various places, and I am not ashamed to tell you I have wept in those places. I have walked around and I've looked at graves and I've seen at the bottom of the grave age 17, 
age 90, age 24, age 22, age 23, and I have just wept. We send kids to war. We sent kids to war. I was reading a little article on the BBC about, and this is to me nothing short of a miracle, a family of eight brothers who went off and all fought in the First World War simultaneously. And the miracle, what was the miracle? Seven of them came back, which in First World War terms is miraculous. You might have thought the miracle was that one came back. And so unusually and uniquely, And so the tension for me is just the profound sense of grief and loss multiplied a million times for every mother and father whose kid went off to war age 17 and doesn't come back. In the name of what? Statehood, national identity. In the name of a a conflict that in earthly terms was perhaps necessary to some extent, but very often it's hard to see that it was necessary for the extent of losing that life. You see, there's a dangerous thing where we align our faith with our statehood. Gott mit uns means God with us. It's what Nazi soldiers used to have and carry to remind them that God was on their side. In the same way that the British and Allied forces went into war thinking God is on our side. You don't have to go far in American Christianity to see the almost total fusion in a nation that separates church and state of Christianity and the flag. See, these are dangerous fusions because Jesus did not come to endorse or affirm or defend the sovereign statehood of any one nation. He came to call people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language. And if you doubt me, look at Revelation 7, where there's a vast multitude gathered from every nation, tribe, people, tongue, and language. And so on the one hand, I want to remember and honor and affirm the courage and the sacrifice of people and at the same time be absolutely angry. You know, Jesus called these disciples, and they followed. They were called up by Jesus. (laughs) Excuse me. But they were called up. Called up to something that ultimately is about truth and about life and about hope. And it was Jesus who called them up as the Lamb of God. He would be the sacrifice, not them. He would be the one who'd laid down his life as the king of that nation and the king of all kings to fight and offer, to take on the forces of evil, darkness, and death, to enter the jaws of death itself and break it from the inside that he might break open the tomb he was laid in and every other tomb of every person of any nation. And so we remember on the one hand, but we remember with caution and care on the other. I love this little 
snapshot from Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. You see, we serve a God who doesn't take the sides of nationhood or statehood. We, take a God, we serve a God who, yes, takes sides against evil. And that's then when it becomes complicated. And so we remember the grief, the courage, the sacrifice, the pain, the cost of war. But we recognize that Jesus did not come to be the king of Israel, but that he called up men and women as he calls up men and women now to belong to a nation that transcends all nationhood and statehood, every barrier and division that sets people fighting against one another, and instead to be agents of peace, of reconciliation, to be a force for good news, And so we remember, but we remember and we see at the level of godless statehood the carnage that ensues. And we remember that Jesus calls people to a different statehood, to a different kingdom, and that he gives us good news of his willingness to offer himself instead of calling us And yes, there's a very real sense in which we are called to give our lives in their all in the service of Jesus. And yes, there are people around the world who will die for Jesus and give their lives, but do so for an eternal cause. Do so for a cause of resurrection and of truth. Do so for the reign and rule of God to extend in peace and grace and to take away every uh, tear There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. But of course, what it takes and what it calls for are people like Andrew to ask themselves, who's in my immediate network? Or people like Philip, who's in my community? Or people like Nathaniel, who's that awkward so-and-so that doesn't look like they would ever want anything to do with Jesus? And am I the one that Jesus is sending them to so that they too may be part of the kingdom of God? Let's pray together.